Good morning. How about those Lions? But as much as I love Penn State football, reading the scriptures, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and systematic theologies, man, I love those even more. Reading A.A. Hodge, nothing better. Finding patterns in scripture, I think that's cool. Finding chiasms that may or may not be there, that's my passion. Praying, not so much. I've been through a lot of phases in public prayer. I've prayed books. I've prayed to demonstrate how spiritual I am. And I've prayed to show others that they're wrong. And I've learned over the years that none of that is good and that silence is golden. And so I've developed the habit of avoiding praying in public. Not that you can avoid it altogether. Like at the end of Sunday school class, hey Al, would you close us in prayer? And I'm thinking, no. But I hear my lips saying, yes. And so I muddle through private prayer. It's a little better, but not much. I find myself praying for things I shouldn't. I find myself easily distracted by a stray thought. It zips in, I grab hold of it, and off we go. Minutes later, I remember that I was praying, but I'm too embarrassed to continue. Having a Calvinistic outlook on life, you know, a strong belief in God's sovereignty, well, that doesn't help either. I'm like that centurion in Matthew 8. Just say the word, Lord. I mean, you know the problem. You can fix it. Reminds me of Habakkuk. He was upset that God was allowing injustice to fester among his people. And so he prays a complaint to God in Habakkuk chapter 1. And he ends his complaint with this. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. And I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me. And there's my model for prayer. See, I don't think I should keep pestering God over whatever it is. It's kind of like fire and forget. You know those weapons that you launch and they guide themselves to the target? So that's my prayer life. But as we'll see today in Luke 18, 1 through 14, <clears throat> in our passage, the Lord commands that we ought to pray. And we have two points for today. I must pray at all times, even when I suffer injustice. And I must pray with a broken heart when I sin. And speaking of that, Let's pray. Uh, any volunteers? Oh, Lord, uh, we ask that you would bless this time, and we ask that your word will speak to our hearts and that your Holy Spirit will lead us to greater faith. Amen. Well, our passage today is Luke 18, 1 through 14, and it contains two familiar parables, and our two points correspond to those parables now, both parables are about prayer in the heart. And the first parable is popularly known as the parable of the unjust judge. But I don't think that this parable is really about the judge. See, in verse 1, Luke tells us that Jesus told the parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. And so we see a positive decree, pray at all times, and a negative decree, don't lose heart. And so I think the main focus of the parable 
is that I must pray at all times, even when I suffer injustice. And so let's start with verses 1 through 8. Please listen to the inspired, the infallible, the inerrant, and the authoritative word of God. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God or respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Well, first, let's take a look at that phrase, lose heart. It occurs nine times in the 95 version of the NASB. And that same sentiment occurs in many other places in Scripture, but with slightly different wording. The Scriptures address losing heart because it's a common malady among people, and it's a serious malady that, as we will see, can be fatal to our faith. You see, when we lose heart, we tend to give up. Well, that just happened to me when I tried to buy a new car. So I ordered it online, and the next day the dealer called to say, sorry, it's been sold but we have another. So I said, great, I'll drive right up and buy it. Left work early, I drove 90 minutes to the dealer, and as I walked in the door, they were like, sorry, that car too has been sold. How about a nice used car? Well, I was disappointed. Started thinking maybe I should give up. So I went to another dealer. They had a car in the lot, it wasn't sold, but they wouldn't give me the same trade-in value. Just couldn't catch a break. I was thinking maybe I should give up. And then a Baltimore dealer called, and they said they had one. So I drove down there. But the car wasn't on the lot. It was in the pipeline, and it wouldn't be delivered for two weeks. And meanwhile, my trade in value was diminishing by 150 miles a day. I guess a new car was just not in the cards, and I just wanted to give up. Poor me, right? A first world problem. There are many people in the world without clean drinking water, and I'm losing heart over not finding a new car and getting the optimum trade-in value. So while my reason was frivolous, the scriptures, though, list serious reasons for losing heart, like our sin before God in Lamentations 1.22. So I really don't like thinking about my sin, but when I do, it can be overwhelming and I can lose heart. We can lose heart over deep sorrow for ourselves or for others. In Jeremiah 8, we read, My sorrow is beyond healing. My heart is faint within me. I can lose heart when I grow weary of struggling with sin, as in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2. See, remaining steadfast, in spite of all the temptations in our life, is hard. And we can grow weary of the struggle with sin and just give in. 
I can lose heart when I grow weary of doing good. And so Paul reminds us in Galatians, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. I can lose heart if I believe in bad doctrine. We've all heard people complain about doctrine. It's divisive. It's boring. It's too hard. Yet, good doctrine is critical for many reasons, like helping us to maintain a steadfast heart. You see a false belief about God? Well, that can cause you to lose heart. Listen to Job 23. But he is unique, and who can turn him? And what his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. Therefore, I would be dismayed at his presence. When I consider, I am terrified of him. It is God who has made my heart faint, and the Almighty who has dismayed me. Well, that's an appropriate attitude for those outside of Christ, but not for those in Christ. Consider Ephesians 2. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. The correct biblical doctrine teaches us that if you're a believer, you are no longer an enemy of God, but his child. It teaches us that he loves us and that he cares for us so much that he has adopted us as sons. But perhaps one of the biggest reasons that we can lose heart is injustice. And that's what the Lord focuses on in this first parable. Why would the Lord care if we lose heart? Well, you know what losing heart implies, right? It implies that we have a steadfast heart to begin with. Psalm 118, the sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. If your heart of stone has been transformed into a heart of flesh, you should have that joy, joy, joy down in my heart. But living in a fallen world isn't easy. It can cause us to lose heart, and that's a big deal. So much so that the Lord commands that we ought to pray at all times and not lose heart. And he reinforces the command with the parable that we see in verses 2 through 8. Listen to 2 and 3 again. In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. Did you notice that repeated phrase in both verses, there was? There was a judge. There was a widow. Two entirely different people. One was a powerful member of the community. That position of judge was established when Moses complained to God that his workload was too high. And so God authorized him to appoint 70 judges from the people of sterling character. They were supposed to be just. In Deuteronomy 1, we read, Then I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen, and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen or the alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. And in Second Chronicles 19, we read, He said to the judges, Consider what you are doing. 
For you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do. For the Lord God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. Yet, by his own admission, the judge in the parable doesn't fear God or respect man. He's abused his position, and I personally think that if you wanted justice from this judge, you had to pay for it. Isaiah knew about this kind of judge. In Isaiah 1, we read, Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan nor does the widow's plea come before them. And so the Lord declares him to be unrighteous in verse 6. Now take a look at the widow, one of the lowest members of society. She lacked power, money, and a protector. And so she appeals to the judge for relief from some opponent. And she teaches us two important aspects of prayer in verse 3. Be courageous and be persistent. Listen to verse 3 again. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection for my opponent. As a courageous lady, she boldly approaches the one who is able to help. She wasn't put off by his position or his authority. He was there to serve the people, including her. And so she stands on the scripture when she approaches him. We too stand on the scripture when we approach God in prayer. In Hebrews 4.16, we read, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So no matter what our problem, we need to bring it before God in prayer. And she was persistent. She did not give up when rebuffed. She didn't lose heart when her plea went unanswered. And neither should we. This was not a fire-and-forget request. She continued her appeal until she received the protection that was rightly hers. And then the Lord contrasts the unrighteous judge with God in verses 6 and 7. The unrighteous judge is selfish. He only cares for himself. Providing legal protection for that widow would not have cost him one cent or even a shekel. All he had to do was make a declaration. And in fact, providing justice for the widow was a command. In Deuteronomy 27, Cursed is he who distorts the justice due an alien, orphan, and widow. But he apparently wanted to bribe money or something else, and so he does nothing. He didn't care about the widow. He didn't care about right or wrong. He only cared for his own comfort And that finally moves him to grant the widow relief. But God is different. God is good, caring, and just. Listen to Psalm 84. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The Lord God is good. And he cares for people. Psalm 104 He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil 
and food which sustains man's heart. 1 Peter 5, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And God is just. Psalm 37, For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. But it looks like there's a problem here. The unrighteous judge failed to deliver justice in a timely fashion. But doesn't God also delay in delivering justice? Listen to Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? And then there's Revelation 6. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So what's the difference? Both the psalmist and the martyrs are crying out to God for justice, just like the widow is crying out to the judge for justice. Seems like both God and the unrighteous judge delay in delivering justice. But God is good, caring, and just, while the judge in the parable is unrighteous. So what's up with that? You know, I think it's really important to understand this. One of our first complaints growing up is, that's not fair. We have an innate sense that life should be fair, and then we find out it's not. Now, most of the justices that we suffer are not really that big in the grand scheme of things. They seem big at the time, but as life goes on, we come to realize that they're not. But some people, even some kids, suffer great abuses that stick with them for their entire lives, and it colors our view of God. How can a good, caring, and just God allow abuses like that? All right. We understand that people are not puppets. We understand that people are free moral beings, and they are free to make their own choices, and that many of those choices are evil and will affect other people. But how can he delay so long in bringing justice against these evil people? And why does Jesus say in verse 8 that God's justice does not delay? Listen to verse 8. I tell you, he will bring about justice for them quickly. This is hard. The inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word of God tells us that God is good, caring, and just, and he will not delay in bringing justice. And yet, that is not our lived experience. So how do we reconcile this? Well, I think our friend Habakkuk may shed some light on it. In Habakkuk 2.3, the Lord promises him that he will deal with the injustices of his people, and he gives this answer. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. 
it hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come, it will not delay. God's justice can tarry, but it does not delay. See, tarry has the sense of waiting for the appointed time. The word delay here has the sense of waiting without hope or a reluctance to act. But that's not how God's justice works. He's not reluctant to act. There's an appointed time in which he will bring justice. So we have to ask, what purpose does tarrying serve? Perhaps God tarries to show mercy to the offender. When you and I experience injustice at the hand of another, maybe God is allowing that offender to have some time to repent. And maybe you and I can play an active role in that. I ever received a call from the Social Security Administration, from the IRS, or the FBI? My responses to these scams have been all over the map. Mostly I just hang up. Sometimes I answer the phone and I just let it sit there, hoping that that extra minute of delay will keep them from bothering one more person. Sometimes I shout angry words at them. Lately, I've tried, how do you sleep at night? How do you live with yourself being a fraud and a thief, stealing from other people? Maybe you should repent to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, by that point, they usually hang up. But at least they've heard a call to repentance. Perhaps God tarries to show mercy to the one who feels offended. See, over the years at work, I've worked alongside a number of Christians, and some of them have felt persecuted. So most of them needed to take a deeper look within themselves and repent of the behaviors that cause people to dislike them. And so maybe God is using these offenders to smooth off their rough edges. Perhaps God tarries to build character in his people. Perhaps he uses injustice to build up patience and a deeper dependence upon God. Perhaps God tarries to bring uh, in bringing justice to give his people the opportunity to demonstrate how a Christian handles suffering. And think of Job. He showed everyone that he loved the giver and not just the gifts. And so the Lord in verse 8 asserts that justice will come quickly, albeit in God's perfect timing. He says, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So he couples his assertion that justice will come quickly with an interesting question. Will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? He says, God will be faithful in caring for his people and delivering justice. But will you and I be faithful in trusting him, or will we lose heart? <clears throat> will, we go, <clears throat> will we grow weary of doing good? <clears throat> Sorry. Will we begin to doubt God's goodness? Will we use injustice as an excuse for falling away? I mean, after all, isn't that what it means to lose heart? Isn't, isn't losing heart actually losing our faith and trust in God? Do you remember the joy in your heart when you first came to salvation? 
Pilgrim's Progress puts it this way. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Have you experienced this? Have you come to the Savior, confessed your sins, and asked him to be the Lord of your life? Are you trusting in him that his death on the cross paid the penalty for all of your sins? If not, why not? Don't let today pass without coming to Christ. Belonging to a church doesn't save you. Having believing parents doesn't save you. Trying to be a good person doesn't save you. Jesus came saying, repent and believe, and that is the way to salvation. And then you will have a steadfast and joyful heart. The scriptures tell us that a joyful heart is synonymous with salvation. Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Oh, come, in Psalm 95, oh, come, let us sing to, for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. If you've experienced salvation from sin, if your heart of stone has been changed to a heart of flesh, you really should have that joy, joy, joy down in my heart. But living in a fallen world isn't easy. It wears on us over time. And it can steal away our joy and cause us to lose heart over things like praying for the salvation of a child or a family member for years with no results. Praying and waiting for that perfect spouse to come along. Praying and waiting for that imperfect spouse to find some perfection. Praying and waiting for the resolution of serious medical conditions praying and waiting for relief of economic distress. And so the Lord commands, we are to pray at all times. He doesn't want fire and forget. He wants active communication where we boldly approach the throne and seek his will. He does not want us to lose heart. He wants us to guard our hearts. And one of the ways to guard our hearts is through the scriptures. Remember Psalm 119. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Light keeps us from stumbling in the dark. And the light of scripture keeps our hearts from stumbling. And so the Lord calls us to trust in God's goodness, his care for his people, and for his justice. And if you think about it, praying at all times is an important witness. I mean, who prays to a God who does not listen, who is not good, who does not care, and who is unjust? Praying at all times and not losing heart is a witness that we believe and that we love the giver and not just the gifts. But trusting in a God like that, who is a God of justice, means that we must trust in him and not ourselves. And so the Lord tells another parable in 9 through 14. And he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, 
Adulterers are even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, this parable teaches that I must pray with a broken heart when I sin. Two men come to the temple to pray, and we see a comparison of their prayers. The first man is a religious leader of the community. The Pharisees had dedicated themselves to keeping the law and to personal holiness, but they wanted to do so in their own strength and on their own terms. And they were not shy about coercing others to obey their moral code, which led to contempt for other people. If you look closely at the Pharisee's prayer, you see that he doesn't believe that he has committed any sins of omission or commission. Let's look at the sins of commission first. He does not steal. He does not commit adultery. He does not covet. In fact, he's a true Jew, not like this tax collector. See, tax collectors sold their own people out to the Romans. They had to collect a certain amount, and everything, anything over that was theirs to keep. And so they bullied and tricked and deceived their own people out of money. But the Pharisee isn't like that. He was simply contemptuous of God's people. Well, then the Pharisee moves on to sins of omission. He doesn't shirk on tithes, and he fasts twice a week. But God's law does not require fasting twice a week. There are occasions in the Old Testament where the people were called to fast, but it was never a ritualistic practice. I think the Pharisee is boasting about fasting to show that he goes beyond what is required. You know, all those things that he doesn't do, that's good. Not stealing is good. Not committing adultery is good. Not coveting is good. Tithing is good. Nothing wrong with fasting. I should practice it a lot more. But his prayer really isn't a prayer, is it? In, Luke, in verse 9, Luke tells us that Jesus told this parable to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And although he starts his prayer with thanking God, the rest of it is all I, I, I. And it's all a surface understanding of God's law. In Jeremiah 17, we read, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I doubt this Pharisee has ever done any introspection of his own heart. We, however, need to do some. We need to be honest with God about who we are, what we think, the ways that we're tempted, and how we failed. Self-honesty is hard, though, because the heart really is more deceitful than all else. A friend of mine recently asked me how I was doing, and I gave you know, one of my standard responses that, oh, I'm you know, fat, dumb, and ugly. And my friend responded with, oh, Al, you're not dumb. Well, a couple of you are awake. There we go. <laughs> Honesty. That's the ticket. 
But that's a foreign concept to this guy. And his understanding of the depths of God's law is about an inch deep. And so, no, this is not a prayer. You can imagine this guy standing before the Lord after his death answering that question, why should I let you in? And I think his answer would be the same as his not a prayer. I did not sin, and I did good works. Will that be your answer? Have you shut your mind to a deep understanding of God's law? See, when, when God created the world, he also established what are called creation ordinances. Marriage is a creation ordinance. Work is a creation ordinance. Worship is a creation ordinance. All of the Ten Commandments are derived from the creation ordinances. Adultery is prohibited because of the creation ordinance of marriage. Stealing is prohibited because of the creation ordinance of work. Images of God are prohibited because of the creation ordinance of worship and so on. The Ten Commandments, then, are summaries of God's moral law, and they hold within themselves a depth of greater understanding that is revealed in the rest of Scripture. Our Pharisee? He's lazy. He didn't search the Scriptures for a deep understanding of the moral law. Have you? Did you know that the Westminster divines have given us a head start in this? They tackled this greater understanding of the depth of the moral law in the larger catechism, starting at question 99. And they begin addressing each commandment, starting at question 103. And they use this format. What is the nth commandment? What are the duties required by the nth commandment? And what are the sins forbidden by the nth commandment? It is sobering reading. Just like the Pharisee, the Westminster divines saw sins of omission and sins of commission. But unlike the Pharisee, they searched the scriptures for a deep understanding of God's law, and I think that the tax collector in the parable did the same thing. I think he had a true understanding of the depth of sin in his heart. See, everything about this man screams humility and brokenness of heart. He stands at the edge of the temple. Here's a man who understands the fear of the Lord. In Exodus 20, we read, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. He stands at a distance and he won't even lift his eyes to heaven. Now, I was amazed at the number of verses that contained the words lift in eyes. And a lot of them have to do with worship, like Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. But this man won't even do that. He's so overcome by God's holiness and his worthiness, and he beats his breast. One of our children, before they could talk, would bash their head into a wall. I figured if they did it hard enough, they'd learn not to do it again. But Trish, who's more compassionate, figured out that this child was experiencing allergy headaches. Their head hurt so much that they tried to quell the pain by bashing it into the wall. And this man is beating his breast because it's the location of his heart, and it hurts. He is brokenhearted over his sin. This man understands the depth of God's moral law. He understands his sins of omission and commission, and he sees the sin in his heart. His prayer? God, 
Be merciful to me, the sinner. There's only one cure for a broken heart, and it's not in Vogue magazine. That cure is God's mercy as he extends forgiveness to us. And so this man asks for mercy. He identifies himself as a sinner who rightly deserves God's judgment. He doesn't give a reason for deserving mercy because mercy cannot be deserved. He comes as he is, a sinner. He acknowledges his sin to himself and to God and simply asks for mercy. This man confesses that God and God alone is the only moral authority in the universe and he recognizes that he is under that authority and that he has broken his law. He confesses that it is God and God alone who can forgive sin. And Jesus tells us that it is this man who receives mercy. It is this man who is justified. And then he points out that self-exaltation is worthless. All of us are sinners. We can lie to ourselves until kingdom come. But when the kingdom does come, the proud will be humbled. How much better to confess who we really are and benefit from God's mercy. Did you notice that the judge and the Pharisee are cut from the same cloth? Neither respects God nor man. Both believe themselves to be better and more worthy than others. Both have a defective view of God's moral law and his justice. And did you notice that it's the widow and the tax collector that are the people of faith? Each teaches us a different aspect of prayer. The widow teaches us that we can approach the throne boldly and confidently despite our lowest state before the Almighty. She teaches us that we need to be persistent and pray at all times because, well, persistence works. There's a brand new RAV4 sitting out in the lot today because I didn't give up. And the widow teaches us that we need to guard our hearts. We must remain steadfast and not lose heart even when God tarries, for he surely will not delay. The tax collector teaches us that God is merciful. He teaches us that we must have a broken heart over our sin and bring that heart to God in repentance, for it is God and God alone who justifies. So I would appreciate your prayers for my prayer life. Pray for me, other people in the congregation, and yourself. But pray for me that I will pray at all times, even when I suffer injustice, and that I will not lose heart, even when God tarries, but that I will remain steadfast and finish well. Pray that I will not hold to a frivolous understanding of God's moral law, but that I will hold his law in high regard and bring my brokenness over sin to him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you care so much for us, that you even address the problems we face with losing heart. Thank you that you paid the price so that we can be forgiven and justified. And thank you for your word that keeps our hearts steadfast. Amen.